<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So my friend George just sent me a, uh, by the way, top of the morning to you, just sent me a screenshot from CNN that says, breaking news, in final bid for victory, Trump changes name to Joe Biden. I get it. It's a spoof, but it's hysterical. Anyway, we've got, we've got a lot going on today. First of all, I think probably the most underreported story since May has been Mitch McConnell trying to block first the HEROES Act and then, you know, the Democrats came back and said, okay, three trillion is too much for you. How about two trillion? And there was another piece of legislation. I'm not sure it ever had a name, but it was like the, uh, well, how's this act? (laughs) And he has refused to even allow either of these pieces of legislation to even be discussed on the floor of the Senate. And, you know, now we're talking about maybe there's a compromise that we can blah, de, blah, de, blah. But what nobody seems to be talking about is that Mitch McConnell has been holding your health and your economic welfare. If you're one of the 20 million Americans who have lost your job or the 10 million Americans who have lost your health care or the probably 30 or 40 million Americans who've seen, you know, your economic fortunes diminish substantially over the last um, little less than a year, nine months or so, that Mitch McConnell is holding this hostage in exchange for a limit on corporate liability, an end essentially to corporate liability. We've got for-profit corporations that have lied to their workers. We know this now. I mean, specifically, uh, some of these meatpacking plants that hire a lot of workers who don't speak English, literally lying to their workers in foreign languages, in Spanish or in other languages. We have, again, it was the meatpacking plants, but this goes way beyond them, having executives start an office pool, a lottery or a pool, essentially, a betting pool, on which of their employees are going to die first from COVID. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm gonna bet on Ralph. He's, a, he's about 100 pounds overweight. Well, I think Marge is gonna be the one who's gonna die. She's got diabetes, you know? And well, what about George? He's got heart disease. I'll put 25 bucks on George. I mean, they're literally doing that. You've got warehouse operations around the, well, you've got all kinds of operations around the country where the employers are, are basically just saying to their employees, put your life at risk 
or you're fired. And, you know, I'm not going to accommodate you. I'm not going to give you PPE. We're not going to change the way the workplace is organized to make it safer or less likely for you to contract this deadly disease. And by the way, most of the consequence of getting COVID-19 is not that you die. That happens mostly to people, you know, over 60 and in poor health or younger people who are really seriously obese or have diabetes or heart disease or severe asthma, things like that. Immune disorders, cancer, chemo on chemo. These are the really vulnerable populations. And when you look at the numbers right now, here in Oregon, every night they publish the numbers and they break the diagnoses, how many people were diagnosed, into categories. You know, uh, 0 to 20 years old, 20 to 30 years old, 30 to 40 years old, 40 to 50 years old, like that. And the, at, what I'm seeing here in Oregon is between 20 and 40. Those two decades, those two 10-year slices are the ones that are exploding. And these are the people who are getting strokes, who are having permanent heart damage, who are experiencing kidney failure and they're going to be on dialysis for the rest of their lives, who are experiencing dementia that in all probability will never go away, who are getting chronic fatigue syndrome that may well be with them for the rest of their lives. And it's not a a small percentage. It's not the one or two percent of people who are dying, or maybe as much as four or five percent if you're looking at the whole population, although that's dropped somewhat, you know, with better understanding that we can use steroids and things like that. So maybe it's down to two or three percent, but but it's not that. It's I mean we're talking eighty percent. This was a study that was done at the University of California on a sports team. Eighty percent of the people of the athletes who got this have permanent heart damage now. I mean it's just it's breathtaking. You know what's called morbidity as opposed to mortality, the sickness as opposed to death that's coming from this disease. And in many cases, people are getting it because their employers are forcing them into situations where they're exposed to it and refusing to provide them with the stuff that they need to avoid getting sick. And then, you know, the flip side of that is is companies who are inflicting this on their customers, who are not reorganizing or rearranging their stores, who aren't requiring their employees to wear masks so they don't expose their customers, or are not reorganizing the movement through stores, you know, along in a particular kind of one-way route. So as a result, people are passing each other with a foot or so of clearance and spreading the virus from from customer to customer. So all this is going on. And Mitch McConnell is saying, I'm not going to give any money to the average American. There's been no, I mean, the Democrats in the House and a few Republicans back in May passed legislation that would have given everybody 600 bucks a week right until today. I mean, in fact, it extends into next year. And that would have funded state and local governments. I mean, Mitch McConnell is cutting off funds to police and fire departments. And this has been going on since May. The money is running out now. Well, the money ran out back, you know, three months ago for unemployed people. And all the protections and eviction protections and every it all ends at the end of this year, which is two weeks away, more or less. And what does McConnell want in exchange for allowing Americans to lift their heads a little bit above water and take a gasp of financial air. He wants an absolute and utter shield of liability for these corporations and their executives. And this is just the beginning, by the way, because once he gets this for COVID, all it'll take is a little tweak of the law to extend that to everything. 
which you know the Republicans are going to be pushing through the next time they have the ability. So why isn't this the top story in the media? In the corporate media? Could it be that those are the same corporations who would just assume they don't get sued by their employees? I mean, just let that sink in for a minute. It is absolutely time to raise hell to call this out. Yeah, I get it that they're splitting now. Now he's tying the corporate liability to aid for state and local governments. So, hey, you want your fire department to come if your house catches on fire? You want an ambulance to show up if you get really sick with COVID? Give us corporate liability protection. And end putting employers in jail. No more of that. No more holding companies responsible. No more workers and customers can sue. That's Mitch McConnell's price. This is psychotic. We need to be raising hell. There's another pile of news I have for you. I'll share with you right after the break, and then we'll pick up your phone call. Stick around. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Helping you win the water cooler wars. Well, maybe when we get back to water coolers, right? Stick around. John in uh, Los Angeles. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Hello, I'm on un- unemployment. I partially work for a nonprofit, and so my unemployment is fairly low, uh, the base unemployment. And uh, I didn't qualify for the half ration thing that Trump put in a couple months ago. Therefore, I'm stretched out and angry. I hear about this McConnell desire for his constituent as opposed to the American people, and uh, it makes me angrier. I just want to find out if you, what you think, since so much time has gone by, if we should just uh, hope for a Biden administration to to do a retroactive thing instead of wait for uh, the uh, Trump administration and McConnell to uh, throw us bones now. By the time that happens you're going to have a couple of million small businesses gone forever. Every single one of those small businesses has a family or multiple families behind it who help put that business together, put their probably mortgage their homes to make it happen. They're going to be wiped out. You're going to have, I mean, we're looking, there's, there's over 10 million people who are facing eviction on January 1st. And they will be evicted. Make no mistake about it. And you've got you know, people who've been living on credit cards, they're going to see a, an end to their ability to get credit. The credit card companies are going to start cutting people off. They're already jacking interest rates up to 30% in some cases. The damage has already been done to millions and millions of families, John, and it's just getting worse day by day by day. I don't think that well, saying, oh, yeah, we'll wait another three weeks and, you know, Biden gets sworn in. and then, But, you know, you still have Republican control of the Senate. Assuming we accept the bone that's thrown to us at this time to prevent, you know, mm-hmm. the any further damage can not something else be done in the future that is retroactive. As, I mean, we've been yes. facing this virus all along and not just the corporations who want the uh, retroactive liability protection. We need protection right. ourselves. The bottom yeah, line is you. democracy is humans, not corporations. They're not the bottom line. Yeah, I'm totally with you. And this is, you know, again, the damage that has already been done by McConnell and Trump and the Republicans in the United States Senate 
is mind-boggling, John. I mean, you know, look at the food lines when, when, whenever a food bank opens up. And you, I mean, literally, you know, we've seen photos in some cities. Uh, Houston comes to mind recently where the, the line to get food was over a mile long. And, yeah, but you know, can, it, got, can be something be done in the future to put this back under a Biden administration? Well, yes, it is possible to give people large chunks of cash after the fact. But A, I think it's extremely unlikely that that's going to happen. And B, if you've already lost your home, you're not going to get it back. If you've already lost your business, you're not going to get it back. Um, it's just, I mean, this is, this is serious, serious stuff. I, I get what you're saying, John. I totally, I totally get what you're saying. But um, we need to act now. So some of the stuff that's going on here, just apropos of what I was just saying about how dying, while, you know, it's an irreversible consequence, as are many of the consequences of getting COVID. A friend of mine uh, recently was debating whether or not to travel, to fly somewhere. And my statement to him was, would you want to be the last guy to die in Vietnam? I mean, we are two, three, four, five, six maybe months away from pretty much all of us being able to get a vaccine, which is hopefully going to put an end to this horrible pandemic. Now is no time to take chances. You ever hear of Creed Bailey? Creed Bailey, he was a political appointee, I believe. He was in charge of the White House Security Office, the head of the White House Security Office. And back in September, he got COVID. And Kaylee McEnany and Donald Trump and, the, and Mike Pence and all the people at the White House, they basically put a lid on this. Don't tell anybody that our head of security, this is the guy who coordinates with the Secret Service and organizes security for the White House itself. He works in the White House. Don't tell anybody that Creed, got, Creed Bailey has COVID, right? We're keeping this a secret. Well, it leaked out this week because his family or some friends of his family put up a GoFundMe page. Why did they put up a GoFundMe page? Because Creed was in the hospital for two months. He was in the ICU. They amputated his left toe and his right foot. And then that wasn't enough. They amputated the bottom half of his right leg to save him from dying from COVID. And now he's got no money. He's got no job. He's got to refit his house. I believe he has no job. He may still have a job. I'm not sure, but he's, he's wiped out. He's got huge, you know, I mean, you know, you go in the hospital for a couple of months with COVID or anything else, and almost regardless of the kind of insurance you have, there are just a zillion, this is the whole surprise billing thing, right? There's all kinds of ways that they figure out that the hospitals figure out to stick it to you. He's got huge medical expenses. Plus, he's going to have to retrofit his house because he's now, you know, a one-legged guy. He's got a disability. He's going to need rails to hang on to when he walks. He's going to need prosthetics. He's going to need, I mean, you know, it's just like they're wiped out by getting sick. The head of White House security. And the Trump White House was like, hey, keep a lid on it. Don't tell anybody. Meanwhile, Australia and New Zealand have come up with a deal. Both of them have COVID under control. There is a small outbreak in Australia going on right now in Victoria, but outside of that, country's in good shape. 
In New Zealand, life is back to normal. They're having rugby tournaments and soccer matches and, you know, life is normal in New Zealand. New Zealand has had a total of 25 people die since the beginning. And Australia has had a, a total of 900 people die, 908. And so Australia and New Zealand are saying, hey, let's be a bubble. Let's allow flights between our two countries with no quarantine. You don't have to you know, do any kind of song and dance. You can just fly back and forth. Because both countries have basically cut, the, the, cut themselves off from the outside world. Meanwhile, here in the United States, we're losing a 9-11's worth of people every single day. Because Donald Trump and Jared Kushner and Mike Pence decided that doing something to stop the spread of the COVID virus would not be politically advantageous to them because the COVID virus was mostly killing people of color and it was mostly happening in blue states. That's what they, that's what they decided back in March when they brought to a screeching halt the post office's plans to send out uh, five masks to every family in America, to, yeah, to every family in America, to every household in America, they, they brought to a screeching halt the plan to organize a nationwide contact testing and contact tracing program. They brought to a screeching halt basically everything and started listening to Scott Atlas, the chiropractor, x-ray, uh, he's actually he's an MD, he's an ex, but his specialty is x-rays and MRIs. He's never, ever worked in the field of infectious disease outside of just being a regular MD. But he's not even a regular MD. He's not a general practitioner. He doesn't see patients like that. He looks at MRIs. That's what he does. That's his specialty. But he was on Fox News saying, hey, we should just do herd immunity. Let everybody get it. Then everybody will be immune. Won't that be great? Somebody tell Creed Bailey, the guy who ran White House security, right? But that's where we've been. And that's why we have 300,000 dead Americans. A little blood on his hands, Donald Trump. I want to share with you a novelist's view of some of these people, and then I'll pick up your phone calls after the break. Stick around. This, this is going to be good. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Defending America from the weapons of mass deception. Tom Hartman, we will sit Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. 
Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, with two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. It's the Tom Harbin University Book Club. Today we're reading from the Tom Harbin Reader. This particular chapter is an excerpt from my book, Threshold. This is from page 312, titled Sociopathic Paychecks. And it starts out with a quote from The Little Prince, 1943. I know a planet where there is a certain red-faced gentleman. He has never smelled a flower. He has never looked at a star. And all day he says over and over, just like you, I am busy with matters of consequence. And that makes him swell up with pride. But he is not a man, he is a mushroom. Okay, through the book. Americans have long understood how socially, politically, and economically destabilizing are huge disparities in wealth. For this reason, the U.S. military and the U.S. civil service have built into them systems that ensure that the highest paid federal official, including the president, will never earn more than 20 times the salary of the lowest paid janitor or army private. Most colleges have similar programs in place with the ratios ranging from 10 to 1 to 20 to 1 between the president of the university and the guy who mows the grass. From the 1940s through the 1980s, this was also a general rule of thumb in most of corporate America. When CEOs took more than their fair share, they were restrained by their boards so that the money could be used instead by the company for growth and to open new areas of opportunity. The robber baron J.P. Morgan himself suggested that nobody in a company, including his company, should earn more than 20 times the lowest paid employee. Although he exempted stock ownership from that equation, he owned most of the stock. During the greed is good era of the 1980s, something changed. CEO salaries began to explode at the same time that the behavior of multinational corporations began to change. When Reagan stopped enforcing the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890, a mergers and acquisition mania filled the air. And as big companies merged to become bigger, they shed off redundant parts. The result was a series of waves of layoffs as entire communities were decimated, divorce and suicide rates exploded, and America was introduced to the specter of the armed, disgruntled employee. Accompanying the consolidation of wealth and power of these corporations was the very real redefinition of employment, from providing a living wage to people in the community to a variable expense on a profit and loss sheet. Companies that manufactured everything from clothing to television sets discovered that there was a world full of people willing to work for 50 cents an hour or less. Throughout America, factories closed and a building boom commenced among the Asian tigers of Taiwan, South Korea, and Thailand. The process has become so complete that of the millions of American flags bought and waved after the World Trade Center disaster, 9-11, most were manufactured in China. Very, very, very few things are still manufactured in the United States outside of the defense industry, weapons. And it wasn't unthinking, unfeeling corporations that took advantage of the changes in the ways the Sherman Antitrust Act and other laws were enforced by Reagan, Bush Sr., Clinton, and Bush Jr. administrations. It took a special type of human person. 
In his manuscript, Toys, War, and Faith, Democracy in Jeopardy, Major William C. Gladish suggests that this special breed of person is actually a rare commodity and thus highly valuable. He knows that corporate executives make so much money because of simple supply and demand. There are, of course, many people out there with the best education from the best school, raised in upper-class families who know how to play the games of status, corporate intrigue, and power. The labor pool would seem to be quite large, but Gladish points out there's another and more demanding requirement to meet. They must be willing to operate in a runaway economic and financial system that demands the exploitation of humanity and the environment for short-term gain. This is a disturbing contradiction to their children's interest and their own intelligence, education, cultural appreciation, and religious beliefs. It's the second requirement, Gladish notes, that drastically reduces the number of quality candidates for corporations to pick from. Most people in this group are not willing to forsake God, family, and humanity to further corporate interests in a predatory financial system. For the small percentage of people left, the system continues to increase salaries and benefit packages to entice the most qualified and ruthless to detach themselves from humanity and become corporate executives and their hired guns. One of the questions often asked when the subject of CEO pay comes up is, what would a person like William McGuire or Rex Tillerson, the CEOs of United Healthcare and ExxonMobil, respectively, possibly do to justify a $1.7 billion paycheck or a $400 million retirement bonus? It's an interesting question. There's a free market for labor or CEOs. You'd think there'd be a lot of competition for the jobs. And a lot of people competing for the positions would drive down the pay. All the United Healthcare stockholders would have to do to avoid paying more than a billion dollars to McGuire is find somebody to do the same CEO job for a half billion dollars. And all they'd have to do to save even more is find somebody to do the job for a mere hundred million dollars. Or maybe even somebody who'd work the necessary 60-hour weeks for only one million dollars. So why is executive pay so high? I've examined this question with both my psychotherapist hat on and my amateur economist hat on, and only one rational answer presents itself. CEOs in America make as much money as they do because there really is a shortage of well-trained sociopaths. The book is, ultimately, it's from Threshold, but it's in the Tom Hartman reading. Welcome back. So this morning on uh, t- on Twitter, uh, I caught this thread. Hari Kunzru, or Kunzru, I believe it is, is a, a novelist, a brilliant novelist, and only a true, absolutely astonishingly brilliant wordsmith could have come up with this. And I just want to do a little bit. And, and what Hari did was create a, a, a Twitter thread, a long Twitter thread, speaking to the outgoing administration. And I just wanted to share pieces of it. Mike Pence, you repressed, joyless, would-be witch finder. Every time you spoke, you always looked like you were straining to expel an enormous bolus of your own hypocrisy from your clenched sphincter. Betsy DeVos, you blandly foolish, soulless, entitled, child-stealing witch rotting like a corpse inside your Chanel suit. All the generals, you spineless, buzz-cut, phallus-brained, plastic Spartans, fawning and wriggling to distract yourself from your moral cowardice. Kaylee McEnany, you evacuated husk of a mean girl cheerleader. The cavity where your heart once was pumped full of spite and moronic lies. Bill Barr, you pompous, pus-filled bladder of 
of casuistry. You are an enemy of justice, bloated with resentment and cruelty, wobbling like a jelly at the feet of the oligarchs. Jared Kushner, you vacuous, dainty, preening, overprompted nub of mediocrity, squeezed like an entitled smear of toothpaste into your silk suit, bought with tear-stained dollars wrung out of your suffering tenants in your slum apartments. Ivanka Trump, you monstrous slug of vanity, you infantile ninny, so marinated in self-regard that in your pea brain, you believe you ought to, people, we ought to love you for your crimes. Mike Pompeo, you bubble, you booby, you flatulent zero, that rolling in your ample guts that you mistake for world-shaking significance is just the acid reflux of your irrelevancy. Don Jr., you scabrous, single-nostrilled, unloved, elephant-murdering human wreckage, vibrating with bitterness and impotent rage at all the opportunities you've squandered. Sarah Sanders, you crude, hulking, beetle-browed bully, working your multiple chins as you masticated another stinking quid of falsity, spitting again and again on the people you were supposed to inform. All you staffers and interns so eager to crunch your way in your shiny new work shoes over the bodies of the poor and powerless, I smite you and cast you out one by one. Eric Trump, you pallid, clammy, separating, nocturnal, semi-human grub, your absence of charisma is your only notable trait, and the act of flushing you from memory will be so smooth and painless then in a month, people will find it hard to picture your moon face. Rudy Giuliani, you capering, cartoonish, skull-faced bag of graft and corruption. Too stupid even to ask who's pulling your strings, just so long as you can cake your crusty face in TV, makeup, and clack your jaw to camera. And, of course, Stephen Miller, you weeping pustule upon the social body. You dreg, you homunculus, you noxious slime felched from the gaping cavity of Jim Crow. One day may you find yourself walking barefoot across hot sand, desperate for water, crying for your missing child. And then uh, Hari ends, with that I'll rest a while and go find a street corner to dance on. <laughs> it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Okay, let's pick up your phone calls here. Shelby in Tallahassee, Florida. Hey, Shelby, what's on your mind? Good afternoon, Tom, and, and uh, that's how I like it. I like it just like you just read it. That's what we need to be doing is to be calling out these marinated rats who have decided that they have no humanity and to think that we now here three weeks from Christmas and no one is concerned that we are here having people to perish. They're getting on here uh, telling us now about this, um, I called about this bill that they claim that Joe Manchin, Joe Manchin from West Virginia, something about the size of this, this, this sink in here with contributions, and they have allowed them to be polluted by the corporate liability crowd that they seem to be holding up a check, but they're giving defense contractors in this bill the right to pay 40 hours of their paid leave, but somehow we can't give paid leave to workers who have been thrown out because of a pandemic and their incompetence, Tom. 
I don't know what has happened to this country, and I think that we're not. What is the name of that, that article? Who wrote that? Was Harry? Who wrote that? That, it was a Twitter thread, and I retweeted it about uh, f- about an hour ago. So you can you can just look at my Twitter th- uh, feed and see it. Um, see, that R- is, I remember, I, you know, K-U-N-Z-R-E. back in the the uh, early 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th century Scotland, uh, where the Highlanders were fighting uh, with the Stuart and uh, King. Uh, uh, James, uh, with this battle, and they would create these pamphlets with my study of anthropology, right? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, 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 that is the kind of conversation that we need to be having, and the Democrats need to. We passed a heroes bill that is being basically for eight months, you know, six months, has, has, has been basically talked down uh, as if that was nothing, and now they're talking up uh, a bill that is completely insufficient for the scale of this crisis as somehow that's a take that we're supposed to bargain out state and local government nothing defense contractors corporate liability that john conan and mcconnell because he has separated this bill and joe manchin has gone along with this joe manchin now I, i i i like joe manchin i like joe manchin uh in the context of when he was the governor he is from a rural state with a disposition that does not follow my disposition because I'm from progressive state, right? But I understand the, 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 the fine line that has to be walked with that man. But for him to now, for his state are people who need that $1,200 check, I just hope that Joe Biden does not come up there with this milk toast kind of unity talk all the time and try to somehow, Mr. McConnell got on the floor this morning and told the country that, that, that uh, 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 Trump had done all these great things and, and they had that, uh, I see that now the deficit hawk has come out, they had that Mitt Romney on CBS with Gail King, and she was up there flowering and laughing with him about his going to go down in history as the only one stood up to Trump, this Mitch McConnell, the corporate Bane man. I mean, something, it's like water has turned into glue. Yeah. You asked, you, you mentioned uh, earlier, Shelby, that you didn't know where this started. I can tell you where this started. This started back in 1971 with, uh, you know, with the uh, Lewis Powell's writing his memo to organize the billionaires and the big corporations and say, we need to get politically active. Then in 1976, the Supreme Court saying it's OK for billionaires to own politicians. And that led right to Ronald Reagan in 1980. And ever since 1980, and this and, and Shelby, thank you for the call. You said it so well. Ever since 1980, what's been going on is that the billionaires and the big corporations have been running the show. We have been in a Reaganism, uh, neoliberal, uh, you know, I'm not a big fan of $5 words, but um, trickle-down world. Neither of our two Democratic presidents were successful in reversing that. I'm not sure Clinton was even inclined to. Uh, Obama talked about reversing it. He had a Senate on his side for 74 business days out of eight years. Um, So even if he was inclined to do it, he couldn't. And, you know, and I think, you know, your point, Shelby, that if Joe Biden doesn't start doing something consequential and big and serious, there's I think there's going to be hell to pay. I don't think the American people are going to put up with another Democratic president who who says, hey, you know, maybe we should, uh, uh, you know, cut Social Security just a little bit. 
uh, and and let's uh, perpetuate uh, corporate personhood. And um, you know, uh, the best thing we can do for healthcare for everybody is throw a lot more money at the big health insurance corporations and stuff like that. I mean, it's just we're not we're not buying this crap anymore. America's not buying this crap anymore. And and I, I know that Kamala Harris knows this. I know that. I mean, it just like it was so obvious in the presidential debates, in her campaign. Yeah, she calibrated her positions from time to time in order not to be, not to lose the primary, let's say. But she gets it. And the people around her get it. She's got some really solid progressives around her. And we're just gonna, we're just gonna have to see. But I, you know, I'm, I'm holding those conversations about the Biden administration in abeyance until after he's president. Because right now, we still have a crisis. We still have a strong man in the White House who wants to destroy our democracy and is still working at it. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's the Tom Hartman program exposing the con in conservative. The hidden history of the Supreme Court tells the story of Nixon and Reagan's committing treason to steal the White House. Patrick in Long Island. Hey, Patrick. Yeah, well, Tom, ironically, I said to somebody just a few hours ago, ago, I said, well, Trump is mentally ill. What's the excuse for the rest of the Republicans? Well, I I think if you're looking at, you know, sociopathy, uh, it's widespread in the Republican Party. Correct, as it is in the corporate world. And this is just a fact of life. And uh, Reaganism, trickle down, uh, go for the gold, uh, be greedy is the mantra for the day. I foresee far-ending consequences for the failure of Mitch McConnell, I'm going to lay it at his foot, of his failure to allow anything approaching reasonable assistance, reasonable backup emergencies, reasonable social nets. We are going to be in such a jam when we wind up with homeless people by the scores because we the, the rent forgiveness ran out. We are going to wind up with loans not paid. We are going to wind up with houses foreclosed. We are going to wind up with a whole lot of stuff when it seems like everybody else in the civilized world found no problem with reimbursing employees to the tune of 75% and giving roughly 1500 or more. Yeah, to, to, to their citizenry. We have been done the worst disservice probably since slavery that this country has done. We have been left to fend for ourselves in the time of a national crisis to incur loss. Not only is the loss of life indescribable and extremely painful, but the work and sweat and effort that goes into building a small business, it's very difficult to bounce back from that when that has collapsed. You've got hopes and dreams, you've got financial futures in jeopardy, and there's Mitch McConnell. Nobody challenged him. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, I'm with you. Thank you, Patrick. Very well said. The Tom Harbin Program, occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week, right here. The Hartman Report is a free daily podcast, seven days a week, and you can find our entire three-hour podcast over at TomHartman.com. Oh, welcome.
Welcome back. Mike in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? Oh, Tom, hermunculus. <laughs> yeah, wasn't that, wasn't that just rich in lang- That language was just so rich. You know, the cool thing about it is if that were playing on the television in the White House, Trump would turn around and go, hey, they're speaking Slovenian. <laughs> Perhaps. So the thing is, is you notice with his shorter vocabulary, he managed to come up with something. Um, now, it was that he said herd mentality. Remember that? Mm, yeah, because he got halfway into saying herd immunity and realized I shouldn't say immunity. So he made a mentality. Suggest, yeah, look up herd mentality, everybody. It's a real thing. What it, it, it actually comes back from the 1800s. Freud wrote a lot about this. He wasn't the first to come up with it, but it was around that time. Now, you know, related to Freud is Ed Bernay. And Ed Bernay was the fellow who came up with the posters to get us into World War One, and it was his right, idea. Right, he was hired by Woodrow Wilson. He was Sigmund Freud's nephew, as I recall. Right, and torches of freedom to get to In fact, he invented public relations. Tales. He invented the phrase yeah. PR. Yeah. I, right, exactly. The, the, the whole field, in fact, it's an industry. Mm-hmm. So where where I'm going with this is out of all those homunculus or, you know, herd immunity, it makes sense to him. It's something he's probably known a very long time about because he's the world's most fabulous salesman greater than anybody's ever seen. And it really makes sense. Now, when I listen to all of the AM talk radio, what I hear almost entirely on those shows is a segment at least several if not a part of the show if not the whole show talking about going in the exact opposite direction about this disease and how dangerous it is and how careful you have to be Uh, in other words it's all a plot by us to control them and invite socialism so right there's your liability. Every time I hear it, I think how irresponsible. You know, I've oh, made, so you're I'm thinking that by. media that carries this right wing message is worried about their corporate liability too, and that's why they're not talking about Mitch McConnell holding us hostage. That makes perfect sense for Fox News and you know the big networks that own the radio stations that that run hate right wing hate radio. Yeah, how many dots can you link directly to the broadcast? Literally streaming coming out of these things into our yeah. oh, I think it's I think it's a substantial portion. Mike, a brilliant observation. Thank you so much for that. Robert in Long Beach, California. Hey, Robert, what's up? Yeah, I was wondering what it takes to get the peg interested in Trump and his bunch and McConnell and his bunch for crimes against humanity, which obviously they've been investing in for quite some time. And if charges can be brought at the court of the Hague and felonious and uh, misdemeanor charges and warrants, international warrants put out for these people, so when they do travel, they can be picked up by Interpol, the international police, taken to the court of the Hague and answer for these charges because the things that they do and have done infect the whole world, especially the president. Uh, travel from the United States to other parts of the world is going to be a problem. Other countries don't want the covert virus coming over there because the United States is lacking because of Trump. So I was wondering what you think about 
how the court of the Hague operates and what does it take to get them interested. And that's right. about it. We had we had Michael Ratner on this program. He's passed away now. Who ran you know an organization that defended the human rights of people. In fact, he got the uh, the Supreme Court the Hamdan decision. He argued that before the Supreme Court and brought that case. Three of the Guantanamo cases, in fact. And he tried to take, he tried to get Don Rumsfeld, this was back during the, you know, during the Bush administration. He tried to get Don Rumsfeld arrested in Germany, missed by one day. And, but the goal was to, to hold him for trial in The Hague. And if I'm recalling this correctly, and I may be wrong on this, Robert, it's, it's worth fact-checking me, but my recollection is that the Bush administration pulled us out of the international treaty that created that court in The Hague, the Court for International Justice, I think it's called, and therefore we're not subject to its oversight. So they could convene, they could hold a trial, they could do anything they wanted, but it's not, you know, they're not going to be able to extradite anybody from the United States for it. So I just don't think that that's, sadly, I don't think that that's going to be an option. I do think, though, that there needs to be accountability I, and beyond just an election. And Robert, I'm with you. I think that Donald Trump, I, yeah, I think Steve Miller, Stephen Miller, just, just for tearing children from their parents and then hiding the, the contact information for over a year from people who are trying to reunite them, should be tried for crimes against humanity. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. On the line with us is Saru Jayaraman, the president of One Fair Wage, director of the Food Labor Research Center at UC Berkeley. OneFairWage.site is the website. Uh, the Twitter handle is Saru Jayaraman, S-A-R-U-J-A-Y-A-R-A-M-A-N, or at One Fair Wage. And uh, Saru, I saw this this piece, uh, your your report. The, the, the title really caught me. Uh, Take off your mask, so I know how much to tip you. And you know, it, it kind of makes us all realize that so much is lost in our communications when we can't see if another person is smiling or frowning or whatever. But uh, this is 
this really goes way beyond all that. Tell us about it. Yeah, thanks for having me. It really honestly goes to the ways in which the pandemic has exposed pre-existing conditions in our economy, in our in our society, and unfortunately pre-existing conditions in the restaurant industry. Because prior to the pandemic, the restaurant industry already had the highest rates of sexual harassment of any industry, largely due to the sub-minimum wage for tipped workers, which is a legacy of slavery. Uh, you know, 43 states allow restaurants to pay their workers a sub-minimum wage and forcing them to live entirely on tips or mostly on tips. Um, that's a direct legacy of slavery. It's also been a source of sexual harassment for a mostly female industry because it forces women servers to put up with whatever a customer might do to them, however they touch them or treat them or talk to them, because the customer's always right and pays their bills, not their employer. Seven states have done it differently, including California and Oregon and Washington and many other states. They require full minimum wage with tips on top and have one half the rate of sexual harassment because there women can rely on a wage from their boss and they're not as reliant on the tips. Well, all of that became much worse during the pandemic. And what the report shows, unfortunately, based on 2000 surveys of workers who've been working, gone back to work during the pandemic, is that not only have health risks really just become horrific, you know, most of the workers report that They cannot enforce social distancing and mask rules on the very same customers from whom they have to get tips because tips are way down. They report tips are down 50 to 75 percent. But also 40 percent of workers are reporting that sexual harassment has gone way up. And hundreds of women submitted Hmm. comments from male customers saying along the lines of, take off your mask so I can judge how cute you are and therefore determine your tips which means that the issue of the sub-minimum wage has gone from an issue of race and gender and economic injustice to become literally a matter of life and death because if these women are being asked to remove their protective gear for the chance to get a tip so that a male customer can judge their looks and therefore their tip on that basis, it's truly life-threatening. It also highlights a reality that that has been documented many, many times uh, in the past few decades that Um, attractiveness, however society defines that, is one of the things that's a huge variable in tips, which should tell us all that tipping is is, um, uh, not just supporting uh, whatever you would call that. I I think this goes way beyond sexism. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, and misogyny. It's some sort of fundamental flaw at the core of our society. But, you know, not only is that real, um, but it, it should call for a complete reformation in the way we do this. I, I lived in Europe for a year. Um, you tip in Europe, but basically your tip is, you know, whatever's the leftover changes. You know, uh, you, you have a $20 meal and you give, or a, a $19.60 meal and you give them a $20, uh, 20 euro bill and they give you back, you know, 41 euro, uh, pennies, you know, basically. You just leave that on the table. It's just the leftover. Because everybody has a decent wage. You know, the tipping is just kind of an incidental thing. Whereas here it's like, well, 10%, 15%, 20%. Why? (laughs) Because that's how they get paid. But it's at your discretion. And and is she cute? I I mean, this is nuts. It's nuts. It's nuts. It's outrageous. It's a reflection of all the biases in our society. And it's a reflection of history. It's so important to know the history because what you experienced in Europe is not an accident. You know, tipping originated in feudal Europe. It was something that aristocrats and nobles gave to serfs and vassals, but always on top of a wage. 
when that idea came to state, the states, it came right before emancipation. And at emancipation, restaurant owners wanted to hire newly freed slaves and not pay them anything and have them live entirely on tips which was a mutation of the concept of tipping. Tipping was intended exactly as you said, as just an extra or a bonus, but it became a replacement for wages because of slavery in the United States. And that became law in 1938 as part of the New Deal when everybody got the right to the minimum wage, but tipped workers who were mostly black were left out and told you get a $0 wage as long as tips bring you to the full minimum wage. So we went from zero in 1938 all the way to $2.13 an hour, which is the absurd and ridiculous minimum wage for tipped workers in the United States of America in 2020. Um, and today you've got, it's, it's the nation's second largest workforce. This is not a tiny workforce of people living on this sub-minimum wage. This is almost 14 million workers. And during the pandemic, that absurd and ridiculous sub-minimum wage has wreaked complete havoc. 60% of these workers couldn't get unemployment insurance because most states told them that their wages were too low to meet the minimum threshold to qualify for benefits. And after months of not getting benefits, they go back to work, and they're, they're going back to work for a sub-minimum wage, and tips are way down. And so they're being asked to do a lot more for, for way less. Less tips, more responsibility, more harassment, more hostility. And, and you're right. It's a, it, the, this report, this research, obliterates the idea that, that tipping was ever correlated with the quality of the service. You're right. There's years of data, reams of data that show that, in fact, tipping is, is directly correlated with all American biases, the race of the server, the yeah. gender of the server, uh, whether, whether she'll touch you or not or allow herself to be touched. We already knew these things, but this data proves, I mean, if, if it were truly based on the quality of her service, why would you need her to pull down her mask and therefore expose herself to the virus and see her face? in order to tip her. It, it, it's really, right. it really is a system, as you said, that needs to go. And instead, we need to pay these workers a full minimum wage and let tips be on top as an extra, as they were always intended to be. Yeah, this also, this also highlights another absurdity and structural inequity in our whole tipping system in the United States. I had dinner with, with the prince of a small country in Europe in a really fancy restaurant in uh, Holland in, in Amsterdam a few years back. And you know, when he paid for dinner, it was like a $400 dinner. He left a tip of about $2. And, you know, which was not unusual, right? I mean, it was just kind of in that context. Here in the United States, if you're lucky enough to get a job in a restaurant where your average check is $100 or $200, and there are, you know, such restaurants in every town, um, and you're paid 10% or 20% of the tip, you make a lot of money. On the other hand, if you're working at uh, you know a, a restaurant that serves you know average working class people, where where you know the, the check might be 12 bucks or 16 dollars, you, you know you're making squat. And That's everybody true. should simply make a wage as a server. The, you know the, the wage could have a sliding scale associated with it, but there needs to be a bottom. You know that is the minimum wage at the very least. Obviously, the minimum wage needs to go up to 15 bucks an hour. But but you know this is just this is another piece of it too that's right i mean listen um you know i think servers who are listening would tell you fifteen dollars is not enough to live on anywhere in this country right now and we need tips on top of that unless we're getting to a point where we're talking about much higher wages but 
But absolutely, workers need a base wage that they can count on, and tips should not be part of that base wage. They should be on top of that base wage. And believe it or not, a lot of even restaurant owners during the pandemic have come around to this idea. They've expressed new support. We just need legislators to listen and follow. Well, we need to we need to reestablish our our cultural norms, you know, like they have in Europe, and uh, in order to make this happen, it, it's just this is a big job. Saruj Ayaraman, uh, president of One Fair Wage, OneFairWage.site is the website, and uh, director of the Food Labor Research Center. Thank you, Saruj. Thank you for dropping by. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Take care. This yeah. is the Tom Hartman program. Hi, for the Tom Hartman University Book Club today, we're reading from The Crash of 2016. This is from Chapter 5. Chapter 5 is titled, Reagan Kidnapped the Jetsons. In a 1966 article, Time Magazine looked toward the future and what the rise of automation would mean for average working Americans. It concluded, quote, by 2000, the machines will be producing so much that everyone in the U.S. will, in effect, be independently wealthy. With government benefits, even non-working families will have, by one estimate, an annual income of thirty to $40,000. How to use leisure meaningfully will be a major problem, end of quote. And that was thirty to $40,000 in 1966 dollars, which would roughly be $199,000 to $260,000 in 2010 dollars. Ask anybody who was a teenager or older in the 1960s, this was a big sales pitch for automation and the coming computer age. There was even a cartoon show about it, The Jetsons, and everybody looked forward to the day when increased productivity from robots, computers, and automation would translate into fewer hours worked, or more pay, or both, for every American worker. And there was good logic behind the idea. The premise was simple. With better technology, companies would become more efficient. They'd be able to make more things in less time. Revenues would skyrocket, and, ro- and Americans would bring home higher and higher paychecks, all the while working fewer and fewer hours. So by the year 2000, according to Time magazine in 1966, we would enter what was then referred to as the leisure society. Futurists speculated that the biggest problem facing America in that Jetsons future of the year 2000 would be just how the heck everyone would use all their extra leisure time. And of course, there were also those who worried about what kind of degeneracy would emerge when a nation has lots of money and free time on its hands. Neither happened. And it didn't happen because Ronald Reagan stole the leisure society from us and handed it over to the economic royalists. In 1981, the royalists went right to work, taking down that first pillar on which FDR rebuilt the American middle class, progressive taxation. Taking advantage of the oil shock crisis, neoliberal shock troopers immediately ushered through a revolutionary change in the tax code with the Economic Recovery Act of 1981. The first major piece of legislation signed by Reagan has slashed the top marginal income tax rate from 70% to 50%, cutting estate taxes for wealthy businesses and slashing capital gains and corporate profit taxes. Reagan succeeded a few years later in dropping the top income tax rate even more to 28%, where it hadn't been since the Great Depression. It was the second largest tax cut in history, and it was nearly identical to the largest tax cut ever Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon's in the 1920s, the one that created the bubble known as the Roaring Twenties, which eventually burst in 1929. The great forgetting had certainly arrived. The economic mistakes of the 1920s were coming back around. And again, the influx of all this hot money in the market 
coupled with a robust deregulation agenda throughout the 1980s and 90s, would trigger a series of painful financial panics. The reason why the leisure society could be imagined by Time magazine is because ever since 1900, working people's wages tracked evenly with working people's productivity. So as productivity can continue to rise, which was likely due to increased automation and better technology, so too would everyone's wages. And the glue holding this logic together was the current top marginal income tax rate. In 1966, when the Time article was written, the top marginal income tax rate was 70%. And what that effectively did was encourage CEOs to keep more money in their businesses, to invest in new technology, to pay their workers more, to hire new workers and expand. After all, what's the point of sucking millions and millions of dollars out of your business if it's going to be taxed at 70%? According to this line of reasoning, if businesses were to suddenly become more profitable and efficient thanks to automation, then that money would flow throughout the businesses, raising everyone's standard of living, increasing everyone's leisure time. But when Reagan top dropped that top tax rate down to 28%, everything changed, as you can see in this graph. Now, as businesses became more profitable, there was a far greater incentive for CEOs to pull those profits out of the company and pocket them because they were suddenly paying an incredibly low tax rate. And that's exactly what they did. All those new profits, thanks to automation, that were supposed to go to everyone, giving us all higher paychecks and more time off, instead went to the top, to the economic royalists. Suddenly, the symmetry in the productivity wages chart broke down. Productivity continued increasing because technology continued improving, but wages stayed flat. And again, since higher and higher profits could be sucked out of the company and taxed at lower and lower levels, there was no incentive to reduce the number of hours everyone worked. In the 1950s, before that Time magazine article predicted the leisure society, uh, before that article was written, the average American working in manufacturing put in about 42 hours of work a week. Today, the average American working in manufacturing puts in about 40 hours a week. This means that despite the fact that productivity has increased 400 percent since 1950, Americans are working on average only two fewer hours a week. If productivity is four times higher than in 1950, then Americans should be able to work four times less or just 10 hours a week to afford the same 1950s lifestyle when a family of four could get by on just one paycheck, own a home, own a car, put their kids through school, take a vacation every now and then, and retire comfortably. But all that was wiped out by Reaganomics and Ronald Reagan. And that's just the beginning of the setup for the crash of 2016. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy really, I mean, the whole idea of democracy is the demos, it's us, right, the people. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 